May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What does one preach on their last Sunday? How about one of the most central, lovely, mysterious, and debated doctrines in the Bible? How about a, a Trinitarian benediction? This verse is not quite the classic Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, list, but it's, it's awfully close. The doctrine of the Trinity is, as maybe you know, and as any good Jehovah's Witness or Mormon knows and can tell you, is, is not systematically spelled out anywhere in the Bible. And the word Trinity never shows up. What happened was that the early church sort of extracted this doctrine, not from one specific explicit passage, but from the wider context of Scripture. They found building blocks for the doctrine throughout the Bible and sort of cobbled together what became the orthodox view of one God existing in three holy, distinguishable, divine persons who share but one essence and constitute but one deity. This is, though mysterious and large and somewhat ephemeral and nowhere described explicitly in the Bible, this is one of the handful of doctrines that is so important, so foundational that we can say that all Christians everywhere believe this, no matter what their denominational affiliation or their Christian tradition is. Now, Paul is writing to a factious church. There are divisions springing up over just about everything, and he seems to believe that the core tenets of the faith, like the Trinity, should be corrective in these situations. The idea of the Trinity should have an enormous centripetal force, powerful enough to hold people together despite their differences and despite their challenges. Now, you may not know, 1 Corinthians is Paul's long reply to an original letter that he had received from Corinth that was chock full of questions and controversies and other evidence of bitter fractiousness and fighting. Scholars don't think that the Corinthian congregation was all that large, and yet it had quickly balkanized into various units that claimed different spiritual heads, Paul or Peter or Apollos. You see, in that day, you didn't have other churches in the area that you could try out when you got sort of sick of yours or got into a disagreement with someone in leadership. If you were a Christian in Corinth, you were part of the single church in Corinth. And so the discontents in the church remedied their lack of choice by setting up the Peter, Paul, and Apollos factions within this one church. And each contained further subunits divided by social, intellectual, economic class, even as Fights broke out over whose spiritual gifts were the most important, whose teaching on important theological controversies was the most correct, whose notions of justice were 
the most Christ-like. And on top of that, married men in the congregation thought it perfectly acceptable to hook up with prostitutes now and then, and at least one of them took up with his own mother-in-law. Sometimes you hear Christians lamenting the current state of the church and saying, if we could only go back to the early church, as if they had it all figured out. But friends, they were a mess just like all of us. And if we went back, did you catch the part about the holy kisses? These were not polite pecks on the cheek, but likely mouth to mouth. So be careful what you wish for. But then sometime between their reception of Paul's corrective letter, that is 1 Corinthians, taking on all of those issues, a few among the Corinthian faithful began to become persuaded by some so-called super apostles that the teaching of their beloved founding pastor, Paul, were not necessarily all that they're cracked up to be, and that the Corinthians needed to start following a whole other set of new ideas and new notions about the spiritual life. So in what we now call 2 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, depending on your political persuasions, we, we find Paul going to, at times, great lengths to defend his credentials as an apostle and defend the orthodoxy of his teachings. And we get to the end of this second letter. And this is the sincerely Paul part, where he wraps up this long correspondence and puts the the coda on everything he said to his beloved Corinthians. Here at the end of this surely exhausting correspondence, which probably spanned many months, if not years, and a number of letters to the Corinthians that we don't have access to. At the end of this exhausting correspondence, Paul raises two weary hands to speak one last blessing upon this church. He doesn't have the strength in his arms that he did when he first planted the church in Corinth all those years before. He's been through enormous hardships himself And he's had his share of pastor's tears over the Corinthians themselves. Still, he raises his tired hands, metaphorically speaking. And he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And what more is there to say, really? From the fullness of our triune God comes everything we need to exist and to thrive as the often fractious communities of believers that we are. What is he saying specifically? Well, so we're talking about the Trinity, three things that you possess and should embrace the following. That we should that we possess and we should embrace more fully the mercy of Jesus. We need the mercy of Jesus in order to be brought into the church to begin with. We need to be spiritually relocated to dwell in Christ as 
baptized people. And Paul uses this foundational truth, this foundation or foundational orientation of life over and over again and trying to untie some of these ethical knots that the Corinthian church found themselves in. And in the same way, we need to remember to embrace the mercy of Jesus toward us as we work to forgive and re-forgive and forgive again all the innumerable ways that we manage to wound each other in the close proximity that's required of church relationships. We each possess, but we need every day to embrace more fully the mercy of Jesus in all of our failure and fractiousness and self-centeredness so that we can extend that same mercy to one another. We possess and we need to embrace the mercy of Jesus, but also the love of God the Father. While we were yet sinners, God the Father loved us and sent his son to die for the entire undeserving, confounding, confounding, frustrating lot of all of us. He sent Jesus to die with us, for us, on our behalf. Hear this. The Father loved us, and he sent Jesus. Don't we often think of Jesus sort of standing in for us and absorbing the wrath of the Father as if God the Son has to convince God the Father to love us? But you see, Jesus is sent on behalf of the Father, by the Father. He comes on a mission given to him from God the Father. There is no discord or conflict within God about you. The Father needs no convincing. He moves into our world with love. And even his wrath, which we read so much about in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, even his wrath is an aspect of love that moves against the destruction and injustice and exploitation that we bring out in the open in our world. His wrath is not personal animosity toward you that Jesus somehow steps in between us and God the Father and fixes. No, the Father's orientation toward you fundamentally is love, and he acts on your behalf. We possess and we need to embrace the mercy of Jesus the love of God the Father, and also the koinonia, the abiding fellowship of the Holy Spirit, who comes to take up residence in the church after Pentecost, or comes in a, in a new way. The Holy Spirit, you see, is the glue that can hold people together who sometimes, let's be honest, don't have a whole lot in common other than their confession of faith. The list of things that we try to use to bind us together is long. Race or ethnicity, political ideology, denominational boundaries, theological systems, 
And often the slightest deviation in these areas between people are often the pretext that we use to sever the fellowship of the spirit that we supposedly possess. As if, as if differences on secondary matters undermines the unity that's found in the confession of one God in three persons. I read a lot of mystery, suspense, thriller books. I love to de-stress by reading stressful books. One of the ones I've been reading a lot of lately, or one of the authors that is, is uh, a lady named Jane Harper, who is Australian. And she sets most of her books in the remote cattle raising communities in the Australian outback, where your next door neighbor may live three hours away. And you would think that they would build fences around their properties to keep other people out and to keep their livestock in and the livestock of neighboring farms out. But these ranches are so large, they're often called stations. It's very impractical and prohibitively expensive often to put a fence around them. And these stations also don't have city pipes running out where they can turn on fresh cold water from the city reservoir. So they have to bore these very deep holes to create a well and an oasis, a precious water supply that's in the middle of the desert or their family and their livestock die. Well, here's the thing. Once they do that, at least for cattle, it obviates the need for a fence. Their livestock roams, but they never roam too far from the well because the outback is hot and it's dry. And if you roam too far, you'll die. But as long as there is a supply of clean water, the livestock remain reasonably close because in their animal way, they value the source of water over their instincts to wander. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit is that source of water for a church, for a family, for an individual. And the fact that you and I drink from that same well of grace is far more important than all of the things that we typically believe to be decisive enough to break fellowship over. What's at the center of in town? What you possess presently and are encouraged to embrace more fully from this passage isn't in town's distinctiveness from other churches, but it's our sameness. It's your confession of one God in three persons. It's the death and resurrection and the mercy of Jesus the Christ. It's the love of the Father and the gracious fellowship of the Holy Spirit. These dig the well that allows the church not only to survive, but keeps it well-fed and actually gives it the freedom to wander out into the desert in out of concern for others who need cold water to drink. When it's all said and done, the weary pastor holds up slightly older, slightly more tired hands to shower down grace upon 
the people that he loves so much. The Trinitarian blessing of mercy and love and fellowship. And through that, the restoration and the one-mindedness and the peace of verse 11. And this peace descends not in uniformity, not in the cessation of difference, not even after all of the personal conflicts and disagreements are ironed out, not when a church has all of the resources it needs. But this peace can descend before. It can descend in the midst of. If you not only possess it in theory, possess it theologically and intellectually, but you embrace it with your life. Peace comes through mercy in in the midst of all of the troubles that can be thrown at it. It comes through love. It comes through the fellowship of the Spirit. It's not something that a church achieves, but it's a gift to be received and embraced. If the Trinity means anything at all, it means this. From all eternity, three divine persons have shared unbounded love with each other. And then, once upon an eternity, they decided to share that love with a universe of other creatures. These creatures turned out often to be quite unlovely. But because of the character of God, they were never unlovable. And if you are in Christ, the mercy and the love and the fellowship keeps coming. It's just God's nature to send it. And it's in our nature to need it. So may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And let's pray. Father, thank you for these dear people. Thank you for those who have uh, moved on and who are encouraging other churches, who are using their gifts in other places. And Father, I pray that we would celebrate the long history of that that has tended to make in-town difficult from a business standpoint, uh, but such a blessing and a rich addition to the kingdom in so many other ways as people come through our doors to move on to other other places and other cities and even other countries. And we, we thank you for that legacy. We thank you for the way that a core group of this church has stood together, has been bound together, has willingly served one another through so many years of, of difficulty and of lack. Father, we thank you for your grace that has been at work in all of this. We thank you for the gift of your love, the gift of your mercy, the gift of the fellowship of the Spirit. And we pray in your Son Jesus' name. Amen.